Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Sometimes we are given tremendous opportunities, and uh, today is one of those days at 10.07 here at WILK. We are welcoming to our show Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, the author of a new book, The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and one, Dr. Hansen, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for doing it. Thank you for having me. It is uh, wonderful for you to be here to talk about uh, a topic uh, of great significance and a topic that's been discussed, let's face it, uh, many, many times. But you have a different kind of approach to this book. So talk a little bit about why you wanted to write about World War II, which has been written about many, many times, and your very distinct approach to it. Yes, there's 8,000 8, books a year that come out on World War II. Uh, well, I tried to arrange it not by chronology, but by the way it was fought on the land, on the sea, in the air, and then tried to describe whether the decisions of the Axis or Allies to build things like a V-1 rocket or a super battleship like the Yamato were stupid, wise, or didn't matter. I also called it the Second World Wars, plural, because my argument was until the invasion of the Soviet Union and Pearl Harbor and the German declaration of war against the United States, all that happened in 1941. It wasn't known as World War II. It was just known as successful German wars, nine of them against Norway, France, Greece, Yugoslavia, and they won all of them. The world was basically at peace in May 1941, and then Hitler and the Japanese opened a whole new uh, front against Russia and the United States and Britain and the Pacific, and suddenly people said, you know, these, this is something new, It's and the British called it the Second World War, we called it World War II, and they renamed the Great War World War One. And so I try to bring that out, and then I try to explain why the Allies won so quickly after 1941. They, they, uh, they won within three years. Uh, yeah, a global existential war. Yeah, I guess in in uh, standard conflicts like the one that we've been in uh, since oh one, it, it that is very short. But the casualty count, Doctor Hansen, was this was yes. I think something that people forget. I mean, there was just such a massive, massive amount of death in this war, and many civilians, by the way. I think we forget that it's been seventy five years since say nineteen forty two and seventy six since forty one. Even longer since it broke out in 39, but uh, it was the largest catastrophe in the history of human experience. 60 to 65 million people died within six years. 27,000 people died every single day of the war, more than Afghanistan and Iraq put together by a factor of five. And we forget that it was the first major war. There were far more civilians got killed of that 65. 50 were not in uniform or not armed of the 65 million. And it was the first major war where the losers, the Germans, Japanese, Italians, lost far more than the winners. In some ways, the war was just a story of German soldiers and Japanese soldiers killing 50 million people who were not armed or not in uniform in three places, Russia, 27 million dead, 
uh, Eastern Europe, about 9 to 10 million dead. In China and the Pacific, about uh, another 15 to 20 million dead, depending on uh, which account we were, we choose to trust. So it was a, a very strange war, but we have it all, you know, we don't think of it that way, that Germans and Japanese were killing about seven times more civilians than each soldier or civilian they lost. And they did it without much opposition in China and the Pacific, at least originally. And uh, I think we need to really think back when we hear revisionist history about Dresden or Hiroshima to see what was the context of those Allied retaliations. And it really was to stop this killing machine that would kill 50 million people. Let's talk about uh, the the leadership of, of Adolf Hitler. And as you mentioned, the Germans must have felt pretty emboldened with their success rate, right? They must have felt that they could that they could dominate based upon what happened in the past. Uh, where was where was Hitler? Stupid, wise, and where didn't it matter in his planning, his strap planning with his with his people? Well, he had a hunch that uh, even though the Allies of that time, Britain and France, had larger armies combined and more GDP and better weapons, they really did. But he felt that after World War One, they were exhausted. It was kind of ironic that the winners didn't ever want to repeat that ordeal, but the losers surely did and try it again and win the next time. So. British appeasement and French appeasement encouraged Hitler that even though they had greater resources, they wouldn't use them. Britain still had the largest navy in the world. And then when you add in the Russians after August 23, 1939, were actively colluding, Stalin had made a non-aggression pact. And the final piece in that trifecta with the United States was isolation. So in Hitler's mind, he thought the British and French don't want to fight. The Russians are going to help me and supply uh, goods and munitions and everything from oil to wheat and protect my eastern flank. And the United States will never come in like they did in World War One, And that gave him uh, a lot of confidence. And then when he, his general still didn't want him to invade because they were traumatized by World War One. But after he defeated the Poles and the Norwegians and the Danes and the Belgians of Luxembourg and the Dutch and the French and the Yugoslavs, and the Greeks, he thought he was unstoppable. And what he didn't calibrate was Russia was huge. It was uh, 180 million people. They had no European roads. It was far from Germany. And Blitzkrieg, that term we use for his lightning surprise attacks, wouldn't work against the Russians. And he had no ability to get to the United States, either to bomb Detroit or San Francisco or land, much less land on the North American continent. And the Blitz had failed to knock Britain out of war. And so he really started an existential war with no means of attacking the will or the power to make war of his enemies. And that was quickly realized within three years, that blunder. Let's talk about uh, our our entry into this war, which obviously uh, was through Pearl Harbor and that attack. Um, How reluctant Dr. Hansen was the United States at this point. I mean, World War One was was very devastating to us, and I guess a lot of people saw we were like you just said. Uh, you know, these these places were so far away from the United States, but then all of a sudden, we had this. Uh, and I'll ask you this because some people dispute it. What was the attack on Pearl Harbor? Truly, the sneak attack that FDR talked about in his speech to Congress. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, there's a lot of revisionist history that say that we, with a wink and a nod, knew they were coming. But 
we didn't really. I mean, they they did the impossible. We couldn't do it. Even when the Dulo raid tried to reverse it, that was a three thousand mile voyage of the Japanese Imperial fleet in the dead of winter uh, and refueling with a, in radio silence when they came all the way from Tokyo Bay all the way to off one hundred and fifty miles off Pearl Harbor. It's never been matched that feat of seamanship, and they really did believe, given the United States had not helped Britain and given that uh, it had not helped um, France and that the Pacific was wide open because the colonial powers had ceased to exist, the United States would not do anything. And they felt they could catch the aircraft carriers, destroy them, destroy the battleships, and then the United States would sue for peace. And, of course, the carriers were not there, and they didn't hit the oil tanks. They didn't stick around to attack the machine shop. They didn't invade the island, and they had no ability to go another 3,000 miles to hit the shipyards in Oakland or San Diego. So it was just enough to get the United States angry, but it wasn't enough attack uh, of a magnitude to do much to the American ability to retaliate. That's the stupidest thing you can do in a war is to start a global existential conflict with a power that has 30 times your GDP and over twice your population. And you have no ability to harm it in the long run, but you do have an ability to get it very angry enough to... Uh, fight back, and the United States already had four-engine bombers, and within three years they would have about 12,000 bombers worldwide, and they would be able to bomb Japan from the the Mariana Islands. Let's talk a a little bit about uh, the leadership of uh, England under Winston Churchill. Uh, Before you came on the show, Dr. Hansen, we were talking about some of our modern-day leadership, and it doesn't seem to be as uh, cerebral and um, passionate, maybe, as as Winston Churchill, who (laughs) really is a a remarkable figure in in history and uh, really, you know, was one of the individuals who, who really put up during this when others were not apt to. I mean, this guy was an amazing leader. Yeah, he was. I mean, if he hadn't become prime minister on May 10th, the first day of the invasion of France by Germany, uh, I think that after France fell, most of the British aristocracy would have quit. But he was a strategic geostrategic banker, and he asked himself questions. Is the Luftwaffe capable of knocking out the RAF, the, the British Air Force? And Germany's Navy, is it able to land troops on Britain? Of course, the answer was no. So he said, why should we give up? And he thought eventually they'll attack according to the tenets of Mein Kampf, Hitler's sort of grand vision of world conquest. They'll attack the Soviet Union, and eventually the United States will come in. He saw all that. Hitler and Mussolini, to take two examples, were combat veterans, very brave fighters, but they they were corporals, and they had no administrative ability or no strategic vision, whereas Franklin Roosevelt had been assistant secretary of the navy in world war one and churchill had been first lord of the admiralty and they could understand how when you go to war what are your objectives what do you want to achieve and do you have the means to match your agenda and of course they said we have to go to rome berlin and tokyo and physically eject these governments defeat and humiliate their people and demand unconditional surrender whereas hitler and mussolini and tojo they had these surprise attacks and declared war, but they had no ability again to to go into Detroit and destroy B-24 production or the Kaiser shipyards in Oakland or 
Manchester, England's production of Lancaster bombers. They just you know, they lived in a world of, I guess we'd call it surreal fantasy. When you look at uh, today's modern landscape, and oftentimes I'm sure you hear the rhetoric that we are quote unquote on the brink of World War Three. How do you feel about the the climate? And if there is is trouble, where do you think it will come from? Well, I, I don't think we are on the cusp of World War Three, but I think we have to learn from World War Two that deterrence. That's the ability to convince an aggressor that it would be stupid to attack. It's not just based on material resources. Britain and France had a greater army, a better air force together, and better ships in Germany. But they didn't convey the will that they would use them after the Munich agreements, for example, and five years of appeasement and the isolation of Americanism, um, isolation of America and the collusion of Russia. But what I'm getting at is Iran and North Korea need to know that our fleet is larger than all the fleets in the world today and that our nuclear capabilities are greater than any other country and our conventional forces are greater. And just because we pulled out of Iraq or we didn't do too well bombing Libya and leaving or we're in a slog in Afghanistan is not a true reflection of the United States' power and will. So I think what we're trying to do right now is to tell North Korea by shows of force in the Pacific or tough rhetoric or even acting a little crazy and unpredictable, and Iran is watching all this, that it's a very stupid thing to attack the United States because it will result in your destruction. But I think over the last 10 years or so, for a variety of reasons, both rhetorical and actual, people got the impression that the United States was very strong, but it would either could not or would not express that strength, and they developed a certain contempt, whether it was reset with Russia or the Spratly Islands bases that China built illegally in the uh, South China Sea or the Iranian deal or uh, the pullout from Iraq or ISIS as a JV organization and the Cairo speech. I'm not trying to pick on the Obama administration because Bush made a lot of mistakes as well, but I guess the, the impression that was created is that uh, we were very strong, but we were not going to use that strength. And throughout history, that that earns a particular contempt from aggressors who say, well, if I had their power, I would really attack people, but uh, they're not even willing to defend their interests. I don't think that's quite accurate, but that doesn't matter. It's in the impression that these aggressors have. What do you think about uh, the leadership of President Trump? He just came back from this big international trip. Uh, do you, where is he going right and where is he going wrong? Well, the leadership is it, it conti- in the modern American state. Foreign policy consists of about five people: the president, who sets the tone, obviously. But this president was the first n- not to have either political or military experience, so he has given much more latitude to his lieutenants, and those are Nikki Haley at the UN, Rex Tillerson at State, H.R. McMaster as a National Security Advisor, Rex, uh, Jim Mattis at Defense, and Mike Pompeo at CIA. And I think those are excellent people. And I think they play sort of the role of good cop, and they benefit or they use Trump's unpredictability, and they leverage people. And they say, you know, we don't know what Trump is going to do, but you so you better be careful. But if you want to cut a deal or you want to talk, we're here to define or elaborate or contextualize what Trump wants. And that I know that sounds a little crazy, but throughout history, unpredictability and erratic behavior sometimes, if it's in measure and control, 
seeds doubt, which is good. But if you're always predictable and you're always going to apologize or you're always going to say you won't use force, whether it's Dean Acheson explaining to the communist Chinese in 1950 that we would not protect South Korea or April Glassby in 1990 telling Saddam Hussein we, we just don't care about an Arab dispute between you and Kuwait or the British saying, you know, uh, we'll take a minesweeper out of the Falklands to reassure Argentina. The irony is that that sober and judicious way of assuring aggressor is much more dangerous than calling somebody rocket man off the cuff. Interesting stuff. Uh, Dr. Hansen, what a, a great topic. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you. About your book, The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. Dr. Victor Davis Hansen is a contributor to the National Review and a really smart guy. So thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.